American footballer, Strictly Come Dancing superstar, entrepreneur, and the voice of American football on British TV. My guest today is the wonderful Jason Bell. The Eyes Have It podcast. New perspectives, personal stories, and eyewear journeys. With your host, Jason Kirk. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Eyes Have It podcast. I'm Jason Kirk, founder of Kirk & Kirk, and I created this series so that I could sit down with old friends and talk about their lives, and hopefully their love of eyewear. So, let's meet today's guest, Jason Bell. Hello! What's up, Jason? I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for joining us today. It's really great to see you. You have played American football at the top level, and then you do something else which is almost as incredible. You explain it clearly to people like me who love to watch but don't understand what's going on. And when I watch you and I watch you with OC, you make it clear and you make it inviting. How do you do that? Oh, well, thank you for that. That means a lot because that is our objective. Um, I think we are very aware of our audience. And because of our experience in playing, we know that most people, no matter how much you watch the game, don't know it the way we do. And the more I've learned about the game, especially when I retired, the easier it is to describe it because I focus in on the simple parts of it and just explaining that because it is just a game. So we, we stay away from a lot of the technical stuff until we get a chance to really, if you can see it, then we show it at the same time and then it kind of sticks. So it's really fun for us because it's challenging to do that. Uh, But yet when I hear somebody like you say what you just did, I know it's all worth it. It's interesting. When you started, who did you think your audience in the UK was going to be? Did you think that it was going to be people who already knew and loved American football? Or did you think it was people like me that were new to the game? You know, I had no clue. I think that was the benefit. Uh, I knew that people loved the game. People had, it had been here a long time. They had NFL Europe. Uh, You had a fan base. But I also knew that they were trying to recruit uh, new casual viewers. And so because of that, I think OC really did a good job of constantly reminding me to stay on course and who we were talking to. Uh, It's good to have that kind of friendship and relationship. uh, Because even if I tried to go overboard, I tried to get too technical, he would reel me back in. So and as the years progressed, we, I totally knew who the audience was and I listened to what they were saying so we could try to deliver that objectively each and every week. So I'm always looking for feedback of how much is too much, but yet you got to make sure you're educating your audience and allowing them to grow with you. Because you're creating a tableau, aren't you? You're, you're, you're creating something new for people to come into, to enjoy, to understand. It, it, it's creating in the same way that we create glasses. Yeah, and you... What you want to do is you want to make it safe and engaging. Uh, you don't want to alienate anyone. Uh, that's something I love about your products. You know, like I, when I first when I first started wearing them, I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't feel I'm not confident to do this or do that. And you were like, well, let me let me let me break this down to you. Let me tell you why you can and why you should be confident. And I've been able to grow with that. And that's the same thing we try to do. Um, just. It's for everybody. Sports is for everybody. Fashion is for everybody. Everybody can find their own way in all of these unique things we do if the people that are the so-called gatekeepers open the door and let everybody in and make it a safe, make it a safe place. And I, that's what I love about this game, uh, the NFL, and, and the audience here, more importantly. I couldn't imagine talking uh, to another audience uh, as far as the television is concerned. I'll, I'll never leave. 
And you and I see you do broach really interesting subjects. You're not scared. That's fantastic for your audience because it puts everything in context. You, you said right at the beginning of this podcast, it's just a game. And I wasn't expecting to hear you say that. You know, in the locker room, we talk about everything. Uh, we, you know, when we come back and we, after practice, we're discussing all kinds of topics. We spend so much time together. When we're on the field, you're focused on that. But as soon as you come in, you're talking about whatever the current event is, whether it's pop culture, politics, whatever's happening. And O.C. and I would always do that when we were playing. So that's exactly what we do now. And we're confident enough in each other that we can go into these subjects and break them down and make it a safe place and a safe conversation for our listeners or viewers, because we're always looking for different perspectives. and. We try to engage in any subject like that, and we, we find it very fascinating. It's probably our, our favorite thing to do. It's very fresh and it's very welcoming. I, I don't know whether you're going to want to answer this or not, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How did you feel about the Gary Lineker affair? Because you as a presenter are talking about really interesting subjects and subjects that, that some people might tiptoe around. You go straight in there, and um, there was a lot of furore around Gary. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Well, I felt, well, when I look back at it, in Gary's position, he did exactly what he wanted to do. And he made his statement and he spoke his truth. And I'm cool with that. I appreciate that. The main thing I was really proud of is like when you look at anything, especially um, labor issues, when your workforce gets together, that's the only way you can combat and defeat power by unification. So what I was very proud of is everyone got on board with him because that is what was important. He may, you know, if you show any division in that, then they know next time they will crush you. They will crush the weak. They will crush the individual. They won't give you a chance to speak out. But if you join together like that, it won't happen again. They won't overreact. And that's what you saw. By the way people came together, his colleagues, that showed the power of the individual. Regardless if you believed in what he said or he didn't, the fact that they came together, uh, that's very important. I mean, I, I'm, I'm one that promotes union, unionization and things of that nature because I understand that's the only way for change to happen. So I was, I was proud to see that happen and everyone come together. It was excellent. It was also a, a public display. And for me, it was something, it was social media used in a really positive way. It gave people a voice. Yeah. I mean, social media is, because you now have a voice, when they used to have the gatekeepers to all media, right? Uh, you, they wouldn't hear what you said unless you could speak to the right person. Now, if somebody says something, you can come out and say, I didn't say that. This is what I believe here and now, and it's instant. So there is a lot of power in that. And movements happen quickly because of that. So, yes, uh, you know, Gary has always seemed to uh, make his, since I've been here, uh, his public opinions, he's not scared to address it. And, and I appreciate that. You know, the man is, he's done a lot in this country with his sport and he has a voice and he's in front of a mic and he's not scared to use it. And that's important because the person who comes up next, the next Gary Lineker is going to say, I can do that because I've seen it happen before. I don't have to be intimidated by this industry and think that I cannot use my voice the way I want to. 
So Jason, you've played football at the very highest level. You played for the New York Giants, Dallas Cowboys, Houston Texans. How old were you when you started playing and how did you know and how did people know that you had this amazing talent? Oh, well, I started playing at around 14 years old, organized football. I was playing in the neighborhood at the time, but my my neighbor around the block, his dad was really into football. So that he was like, I'll take you to practice. It's fine. My mom and dad got out of work too late, so they couldn't get me there, but he took me. And that was the first year I played. And I always thought I was good, you know, running around. I knew I was fast. I knew I had a little talent, but never an elite level of talent where I was just the best kid. But on every level, I think I, that's why I worked really hard. And then I wanted to prove I was the best there. And then the next competition, the next year, the next team, it was that same battle over and over again. I never was like the chosen one at all. I never was the guy you looked at and said, he's going to make it. But I just kept getting better with the talent that I was given. My mom will always say she didn't know I was really good until I came home and was like, mom, I'm going to get a scholarship uh, in football. So I need you to do this, this, and this. And she's like, what? Uh, Okay. Her and my dad are like, all right, you know, uh, whatever you want to do. And, and that's what happens. So it's 14 quite late to be, to be recognized and start playing a sport and and reach that level. Not in, not in football, especially not in in American football, because you don't really want to start tackling until you're later on in life. You know, you, I was playing flag football when I was younger, but no, it's, uh, you can start playing late. You see guys that don't play kids coming out of the NFL Academy and stuff like that in this country that might start playing at 18 years old. Uh, so if you have the skill set and you got the right coaching, I don't think it's really ever too late at certain positions. So there's hope for me, yeah? Uh, no, nah, you got to keep making those brilliant glasses, man. You just, you just, you stay in that <laughs> lane, man. You know, I, I think, I think you got a skill, man. Stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> You're more than kind. But talking about sticking in your lane, there's a couple of things that I found out about you when I was digging a little bit deeper. 10.7, 100 meters. Jason? Yeah, yeah. I could run. <laughs> and you must have known you were that fast, much younger than 14. So I always, I knew I was fast, but I just, it was like in school, it was like the top three kids. You know, I was one of those kids. But once I got to high school, I, kn- I knew I was fast. But once again, it wasn't like I knew I was the fastest guy in California. I mean, there was this another school near me where a younger kid was running 10 tubes. No. <laughs> I mean, this guy, Olympic, right? So I'm flying, but this guy's Olympic speed. He literally was Olympic caliber athlete. So those are the kind of guys I grew up with. I didn't necessarily think I was that gifted. I knew in football terms it really worked and translated, but I, I knew I didn't have a long-term career in track and field. And, but you're also a jumper as well, you, you, your long jump. Yeah. Yeah, I did it all, man. I was, I was, in my first high school, I was the, probably the most elite track athlete on the team, but yeah, it was just com- I was competing, man. I wanted to win everything, so I, I used track in the offseason to basically get ready for football season. So I did all that to work on my skills to become more explosive, a more dynamic athlete to go out there on a football field because that was flat out my passion. That's the only thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to play basketball, baseball, anything. I wanted to play football. So when you pick up a baseball or you pick up a tennis racket, golf clubs, are you naturally gifted at those sports? No, not naturally gifted. Um, I, can, I can be coached quickly because I understand my body. 
So if someone's explaining something and trying to get me to do something and trying to get me to engage in a certain muscle group, I can do that quickly because I've done it my whole life. But I don't have the same passion for it, so I don't lock in uh, like that. I do love volleyball, though. I think I would have really enjoyed that. And you were also gifted academically. Was that a conflict? How did your parents treat that? There was never a conflict. I mean, my parents, I had no pressure to play football. I, but when I did have the opportunity to extend my education, especially for free, that was the main focus. That was the main objective. Uh, I witnessed growing up, my dad was very intellectual, uh, constantly reading. I, I mean, at home, it was the history channel or we were talking about the financial markets. You know, that, that kind of stuff was always happening. Uh, I watched my mom help run my my grandfather, grandmother's business. So I'd always been around that kind of stuff. So education was always the key. That was the number one thing. Uh, sports was always secondary. And it was like, hey, it's great that you can do this, but you know, you know what the long-term objective is. That's what they wanted. I wanted to play in the NFL for sure. <laughs> but I had to do both. And it was, I'm, I'm very glad I had the opportunity. And the US education system rewards sporting excellence, doesn't it? It provides that educational opportunity around achievement. That feels very different to the UK because we don't get that same kind of encouragement and support to use sport to take us through into education. It's, it's been interesting watching that too. The major culprit of that is that you have these academies for the footballers here. So, I mean, at I don't know what age you can go into those, but it's so early. That's something uniquely different than in America. There's nothing really like that. So, the NFL, the feeder system to that is college football. In basketball, you can go pro, but at 18, so you at least got to go through high school. And baseball is the same. You got to at least go through high school before you can get drafted uh, at 18. So you have to have that education to up to that point, period, to play sports. And if you're in college, right, you have to stay eligible to continue to play. So it becomes something you, you understand is a necessity regardless. So you're always engaged in the academic side. And in terms of the vocabulary that goes around that, I wonder if this is like an Anglo-American cultural difference. But I always hear, my friends, my friends who were like at elite level sport, I would always hear their parents and people saying to them, well, you know, are you sure about this? Well, you might get injured or not everybody makes it. And my American friends, it's quite the opposite. It's like, go for it. You've got the talent. Make it happen. Yeah. That's fascinating because you're right. I hear that a lot too. Sometimes I think parents are just, you know, I'm, I'm a parent now and I get it. Like you don't want, you don't want anything. You don't want your kids to do, have to go through anything hard. Disappointment sucks, right? You're trying to protect them. You're trying to do this. You, you, it's like you're building excuses. Of course it's going to be hard. Of course you probably won't make it. Of course it's not going to work out. That's sports. That's why we do it. I mean, every year, every team, whatever you're watching, one team wins. One. Everybody else was trying. Um, that's life. You have to learn disappointment. You have to learn uh, when things don't work out. You just keep chipping away. You keep trying. And I think as a young person, there's nothing like sports that can teach you that. You know, there are other things that are, that are real life things, but sports, it can teach you that. It's, it's, it's the fabric of who I am because of all those things that happened when I was young playing sports. And I do believe kids shouldn't have the 
pressure to play. They should just play. And a lot of times it's the coaching. Sometimes it's too serious. It just doesn't encompass everything that it should as far as how they relate to the kids. But you should be out there. You should try. And you should go as far as you can till you fail. It's all good. You only get one life. Do it. So what's that balance? Talking to your daughter between something that she loves and you want to push her and she's got that drive to win and keeping the pressure off. I suggest a lot of stuff. It doesn't always work. I'm like, do you want to try? Do you, are you interested in this? And I get a lot of no's, but the things she does love, I can see and I watch her engage in it. And when that happens, it's all about providing the resources that I can that allow her to continue to do that without making her think it's my idea or it's pressure. It's, do you want to do this? Oh, you like that? Let's do more of that. Uh, that's how it's been. I would love her to go start running track and field uh, and doing all that right now, but she's just not interested. I'm like, do you want to play football? Just not interested. I'm like, please, let's do it, you know? But at some point, the light, it, the switch may come on. I didn't really enjoy organized sports until like I was into my early teens. So I, I totally get it. The Eyes Have It podcast is brought to you by award-winning eyewear designers, Kirk & Kirk. For more info, find us on Instagram at Kirk & Kirk or visit our website, kirkandkirk.com. Jason, we talked about injuries before. And when we look back at, at your career, you played through some incredible injuries. Did you actually, this sounds like a really obvious question, but did you actually know you were injured when you were playing? <laughs> some of the times. <laughs> when I had the major injuries, I knew I knew it was over. Uh, when I broke my arms, obviously I knew that my arms were broke. Um, when my back, my final injury, it was a slow process, but the pain just kept building until one day it was over. Uh, but I played through a lot of stuff. I mean, you're constantly in pain. So that that's the nature of the game. And there is something to be said about pain threshold and tolerance that is very significant and exists uh, because you can be an elite athlete in our sport. But if you can't deal with that, you can't play. So you just find a way to get through it and manage it. Players are getting much better at it every year, but it definitely was a challenge. Um, but once again, you find a way. There's a lot of talk in UK football at the moment about the long-term effects of, of injuries. A lot of the players that were professional in the 60s and 70s are a lot of older now, um, and they're talking about heading the ball and, and the potential effects and brain injury and things like that. Are you ever concerned, and is that, is that discussed in America at the same level? I mean, we talk about boxing, for example, uh, and the long-term effects of boxing. Do, is that something, is that a conversation in America? Yeah, well, we, you know, they had the concussion lawsuit in the NFL that was settled. So my era, we weren't necessarily aware of the ramifications of all the head injuries, but these, the younger ones are, and they've really done a good job with taking head collisions out of the game from the way it's taught on every level and the way it's officiated in the games. So players are very well versed in what to do, how to do it, and understand uh, the implications of using their head as a weapon. When I was playing, you know, if you came out because you had a head injury or something like that, you, you just didn't do that unless you were knocked out. You know, guys now can say, hey, I don't feel right. They come out of the game. Everybody understands the reason why, because it's all about long term health and longevity. And Tom Brady's playing into his 40s. What's the normal age for an American football star to stop to retire? 
It's a young man's game. If you make it to your 30, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, the average career is two and a half years. It's very short-lived. You know, you, because you have 50-something roster positions, you carry about 60 on a team, you got guys coming in from college sports every year, people got to go. So if you're not producing and you're getting more expensive, a younger guy is going to come in and take your job, right? Managing the finances of the team, you only got so much to spend. So as you get older, you get more expensive, you got to play well and you got to have a role. So it's very hard to last um, past, like I said, two, three years. Wow, that's incredible. So you had a long career. I did. I got lucky. It was, I understood what I did well. And now that I look back on it, I provided a lot for a team because I could play multiple positions, but I was a, I was the kind of player you wanted in your locker room. Your culture is based on the middle of your roster. You know, you got your high end players, you got your low end young guys, but that middle core is kind of the identity of your team. And I fit well in that because of the way I work and approach uh, the game and the business. I loved it. And I was, I think I was a good guy in the locker room. So they kept me around because of that. I'm sure you were. And, you, and that drive and that ambition that you took into sport, you then took with you, when injury took you away from the sport, you took it into another arena. It seems to me like a, a, a very intelligent move that you did. So tell us about what you did immediately after football. So yeah, when I was playing, a friend of mine who's a coach for the Detroit Lions now, his name's Aaron Glenn, and he was the best player on our team at my position. And I had got to Houston my second year, and I remember him telling me, what is your exit plan? And I was like, exit plan? I'm in year two. I just got here. You know, I got an <laughs> exit plan. I'm trying to take your position. That's my exit plan. And that did not happen, of course, but it made me start thinking, what is my next move? And as I looked around, things that interested me, I was always interested in business. At the time, we were doing a lot of stuff in real estate, a lot of guys on the team. and I was starting to do these deals and I, and I realized quickly that all of us had these financial professionals around that didn't want to help if they weren't getting paid. So they weren't really giving us the advice we needed, especially if they weren't in the transaction. So I thought, aha, there's this void in the market and financial services and advice and the way they're talking to us and teaching us, they really don't want us to know. They want to continue to be the gatekeepers and let, make us be dependent on them. So maybe we can't think for ourselves or they want us to make us think we can't think for ourselves. So I was like, this is my, this is my niche. And from then on, I set myself up to go into finance post-career. Uh, so I went and got my MBA in finance from the University of Miami and went right into private wealth management. My last year of my career, people knew what I was going to do when I retired and then jumped right into it. It's probably one of the reasons I dealt with a lot of the depression from retiring because I was so busy and focused on that, that I was able to kind of circumvent a lot of those situations. And I had people around me that were watching me and keeping me busy without me even knowing it. So when I had those tough times, but yeah, walked right into that and was as passionate about that as I was in football. Same approach, just try to learn everything I could, watch the best people around me, mimic what they were doing. And then just like I do on television now, try to translate these topics, break them down, make it easy, make it digestible and go from there. So is depression 
a common problem for professional athletes, like a pop star who's no longer on the stage. When you finish being on that field, when you finish being in the in the spotlight, is that a big problem? I think it is different for everybody. I know like my buddy Osi has dealt with it in a much different way. He was done. He never looked back and he kept moving. It was really on his terms. I think when it's not on your terms, it's hard. And then I also believe and they've done some research on this. I think it was the University of Florida has a program on this, but they equate it to a death. Something in you dies. You'll never do it again. It's the first time I started to think about the finality of life is when I retired because I was like, oh my gosh, I'll never do this again. And never in my life have I ever thought I could never do something again. And that happened and it was hard to deal with. So yeah, it's tough. It's tough for a lot of players. And what makes it really difficult is nobody shuts it down with you. Nobody ends a career like, hey, fellas, let's stop together and let's go through this. That doesn't happen. So that's the hard part. I had a friend of mine, we retired at the same time. He played 13 years. I was seven years. And me and him talked on the phone every day for probably a year. Just we didn't even know we needed each other like that. But we had each other and that was good. It was significant. It is, it's definitely difficult because all your friends, everything you've done, it's continuing to go on, but your world has just stopped and you got to move on. How bad does it get for these guys? How bad does it get for people? Some of it gets really bad. You know, there's a lot more programs, a lot more awareness now, but before, especially before me, a lot of these players, I would think in a lot of different sports has some hard, hard time and nobody knew. Nobody knew. They just didn't talk to them. It's like they just disappeared. Now it's a lot different. I know the NFL has done a really good drop job with getting programs uh, together for players post-career when they retire. You're not alone. You got people to talk to. We have different things set up where we still interact and stuff like that. And that's very important. I'm really glad they've done that because it it's significant. It helps people, especially uh, when they're in a tough place. I mean, I still get text messages from the NFL UPA union daily, like inspirational quotes. And you never know who needs that on what day. Brilliant. When I look at some of the ex-footballers that I know, we need that support here. And I'm, I'm sure our professional associations are offering it. But you're right. It's not something that people really know about or really think about. It's not been brought into the public eye. And yet we're doing so much around mental health. We just need to do more. Jason, how did you get into TV work? Oh. Uh-huh completely accidental. I was at a pet store <laughs> with my daughter and the production company that started the NFL show. Uh, one of the ladies who's very nice uh, saw me and was like, hey, I think this guy Jason Bells in, lives here. I've seen him at the pet store several times with his daughter. So I get a call from the production company and they say, come to the NFL office. I come in there and they're like, hey, we're going to do this show. And Osi's going to do it. Do you know Osi? And I'm like, do I know Osi? He's my friend, but Osi's still playing. They're like, oh, no, no, he's here. I didn't even know Osi had retired and moved over here. I, I called him. I was like, what, what, what is happening? He's like, I know, moving fast. I was like, you doing this show? He was like, yeah. I was like, all right, cool. I knew nothing about television and didn't want to do it. I never had a passion for being in front of the camera. I never was into I was the kind of guy I'd be a red carpet event and I'd walk behind. I don't, I'd never liked that stuff. I, it was not me. I mean, 
even when the interviewing was happening in the locker room, it wasn't like they were constantly putting a mic in my face. But when they did, it wasn't like the lights came on and I was like, yeah, you know, and never was like that. So the only reason I probably felt comfortable enough to dive in it is OC. I was like, this is my buddy. So whatever, we're going to be okay. Because you played together as well, didn't you? And you became great friends on the team. Yeah, yeah. He's my buddy, man. OC was, uh, I, I loved OC. When I first got to New York, you knew who the best players on the team were, and OC was one of them. Probably like three guys that are your top guys. OC was one of the three. And he just was so cool, so laid back, uh, so chilled. And even though he was a star, he was, he had this humility about him. He really was welcoming and he cared about everybody else. You know, he just, he didn't need the spotlight on him. And that's very unique for a person of his caliber. So I definitely was attracted to his personality and, and you can see that now by our relationship. You have an amazing on-screen, on-screen chemistry, and which I imagine is taken off-screen as well. And you're exactly the same on-screen and off-screen. I mean, it's lovely to see and it's lovely to share. Yeah, I mean, I'm the, I'm the kind of, I've been around this business for a while, and I will say, you get two kind of people, in my opinion. You get somebody, you're like, oh, you're exactly what I thought. And then you get people, you're like, no, that's different, <laughs> you know? And I am just, I'm just me. Uh, I am definitely authentically me, especially on camera. The hardest part with television, film, all that is, for me, was just trying to be myself, being comfortable with just being me when the camera was on. Because when I first started, the camera came on and I was self-conscious. I wasn't, I didn't allow myself to be me. And O.C. would constantly say, man, just be Jay Bell, man. Like, be yourself. Like, what do you, you know, five minutes ago when we were talking, it was this way. Now the camera's on and it's not the same. Like, you got to be comfortable. And he would continue to remind me that. And, you know, I, I think about that every year and I try to get better and better at just being me, being authentic. I guess in a way, it's like me and Karen, you kind of, you need that sparring. You need someone to, to work off and, and, and to play with and to joke with and, and to also to pull you up on things when, yeah. you know, when things yes. aren't always exactly right. And it's trust, right? Because you trust each other to have, to, to be, uh, in that conflict and figure it out together. And uh, that's really important. I don't think without a proper partnership, it's hard to excel in anything. So yeah, we're all, we're all looking for that. And when we get it, we, we respect it and keep it close. <laughs> I'm going to round this off with a, a sort of glasses related question for you, because you were on Strictly Come Dancing and you were magnificent and you, you were wearing a beautiful yellow outfit. Most of the time I see you in dark glasses. Like today, yeah. today you're wearing Horace. It's in matte black. You look fantastic. I don't see you wearing the stronger colors. And, and I'd love to see you wearing something, something a, a little stronger, perhaps a little bolder yeah, in your eyewear. How come, yeah. you, how come you feel comfortable doing the bright yellow head to toe and not a bright yellow on your face? I need someone like you to tell me I have to. That's, that's how I roll. You have to. Yeah. With that, <laughs> it, was, it was, you're going to wear this. I'm like, Okay. And, you know, like I wore uh, my blue ones the other day and people were loving them. I had, a, I had a meeting. They were like, I went from, I had my blue ones on, I forget the name of them. And then I had my blue sunglasses on and I was switching out and they were like, that is fresh, man. We love that. That's cool. I was like, Kirk and Kirk. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, I love the colors. Like I love, I love like your Instagram page and you seeing all of this stuff and what people are wearing. It's just, I need some, you to put it on my face like you have before. And you're like, you're going to wear these. I'm like, okay. 
Like that's, that's it. That's how it works. Everything you've told me to wear, I have. You have, and you've worn it beautifully. Jason Bell, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing with us on The Eyes Have It. Great to see you. Take care. Thank you very much. And your glasses are fresh, by the way. Keep it up. Well, that's the final whistle for this episode. Please do follow us on social media at Kirk and Kirk. You can also get in touch via our website, kirkandkirk.com, or drop us an email at info at kirkandkirk.com. And don't forget to follow this podcast too, so you'll get notified of all future episodes. Thanks again to Jason, who was, well, brilliant. Hope you'll join us again, but for now, from me, Jason Kirk, it's goodbye. Goodbye.